Welcome to this World AIDS Day special edition of Spilling the Tea with me, Gloria. Every year on December 1st since 1988, the world commemorates World AIDS Day as an opportunity for people around the world to unite and show support for people living with HIV and to remember those who lost their lives to AIDS. And today we are joined by William Hampson, the author of The Lost Boys of Soho, a true story about having his HIV status used to blackmail him by a colleague while working in a shady gay bar in London's Soho district. Hey, Will. It's been absolutely ages. How are you? Hi, Gloria. Busy, busy, busy. So busy. Yeah? Um, but correct me if I'm wrong, I think the last time you and I were together was at the Shadies. Oh my god, yes, the Shadies! How you didn't win an award in every category beats me. <gasps> Gloria, you shady bitch! <laughs> but as the hosts, it's all about the taking part for me. But you know what? I had so many people messaging me, actually believing it was in a real award ceremony. No way! People really thought it was a real award show? They sure did. And since the Shadies, I've just been... Busy, busy, busy. Yeah. I mean, I've been so busy. Well, we're going to discuss just how busy you've been in this World AIDS Day special episode. But before we do, I wanted to say a massive campulations on your book hitting the shelves of the iconic London bookstore foils. Oh, Gloria, stop it. But thank you so much, you know, because once my book, The Lost Boys of Soho by William Hampson, um, was for sale in foils, Charing Cross Road mm -hmm. in London, the iconic bookstore. Um, I was absolutely thrilled. And, you know, I almost felt like Cher, you know, when she, um, was it the Oscar when she won the Oscar and uh -huh. she made that speech? Um, I guess this doesn't mean I am somebody, but I guess I'm on my way. Oh, <laughs> I know my fellow gays is really bad Cher impression, but <laughs> yeah. um, I did, I, I just felt like that, you know, so humble, but yeah, it was the cherry on the cake. I absolutely loved it. Obviously, I still work in Soho, so every time I would pass foils on Charing Cross Road, I used to think, Oh, I'll just pop in and have uh -huh. a look at the book. And I would stand there staring at it. And um, occasionally they'd be like really low on stock or out of stock completely. Because wow. obviously it was flying off the shelves. And um, I thought, well, you know, business is business. You know, yeah. this needs to be taken care of. So um, I started bringing in stock from home and restocking the shelves for them. <laughs> I bet they loved you restocking their shelves. Files didn't ask me to do this, but... You know, I just thought, you know, it'd be just quite nice to help they out. They didn't know? That's hilarious. They didn't know. But as I say, I just saw it as community service, you know, with the LGBT community spreading the word that HIV stigma still exists. Exactly. And sharing my story, working with those shady bitches, the Lost Boys, um, in the Shady Gay Bar in the Soho District of London. So, yeah. And is it right that you were approached with an offer to turn the book into a play? Yeah, it was really interesting, actually, because I had two German playwrights that contacted me that were wanting to turn the book into a play and just as conversations were ongoing and they were quite lengthy actually um i just thought well, actually this is something you know i could do myself yeah and i just kind of felt that telling my story myself in a mm. play even though i'm kind of not a writer um i just thought it would be something that i could do so i kind of wrote a um a short series of 
um, what I would describe as like radio players. But then where do you go from then, you know, casting people to do it, the voices and, you know, having the skill, the acting skills and the ability and then going into production and then all the sound effects. So it has become a tiny bit of a headache and it's something that I've kind of put on the back burner for the moment. Would you not be interested in doing a one man show or a small, intimate production you can take on tour? You'd be fabulous. Yeah, I, I did. They did cross my mind because I was thinking, you know, is this something that I could just do myself and take out there exactly. on top? But I'm not an actor. I mean, yeah, I was a drag queen for 10 years, but that's very different. You know, it's kind of on a very amateur level. Mm. And you do learn skills and, you know, you do learn how to be able to kind of interact with an audience. And I guess it is acting in some kind of way. Yeah. Um, but you have a mask when you do drag. And I just thought this is kind of, you know, if I was to do something like that myself, it would be just as me. You know, I've got nothing mm. to hide behind behind um so even that'd be the best person to tell my own story i just thought uh and also as well i think it's kind of been done to death to a degree really? you know, i think there was the player cruise um that was about hiv in the 1980s and there's a couple of other people that um, live with hiv that i know i've done um, one-man shows and small productions and stuff mm. and um i kind of just think that you know maybe it's just not for me i mean never say never but because beyond the book and in person you're such a great storyteller oh glory all these compliments i'm getting suspicious what shut do you up want? but um i don't think it's a case that i'm a great storyteller i think it's a case of i just don't show up i am like a classic verbal diarrhea <laughs> um but as i said never say never but i think i'm just more in favor of the quiet life really well you say you like the quiet life but i recall seeing on your social media a post with the quote i'm not an hiv activist i just can't keep my gob shut i think there's far too many people that put on their bios hiv activists yeah just because they've either been on a reality TV show and they now walk around in a white vest and a Freddie Mercury moustache or oh, played wow. up and down on TV in a, a costume that's a nod to HIV and AIDS. And mm. don't get me wrong, I'm not being bitter or bitchy about this, but I just don't understand how they're able to label themselves as a HIV activist. When for me, a HIV activist is somebody who's been, you know, fighting the cause for, for donkey's exactly. years. and fighting the good fight um i just think there's far too many people that these days kind of go for i don't know how to describe it it's almost like they're trying to embody princess diana really you know that oh if we talk about hiv and aids you know people will love us for it you know and it's just like oh fuck off mm-hmm. i'm not an <laughs> hiv activist i just can't keep my gob shut and i'm sure your followers would agree you've been something of a gobshite the last few months with this government petition you created well you mentioned my followers i mean on my instagram i've only got five followers uh, maybe six <laughs> um so you know i can't label myself a hiv activist um for that reason alone so for those who don't know this is a government petition you launched on the official uk government and parliament platform calling on the british government to essentially finish what it started back in 1987 exactly you know finish what you started this government's got unfinished business <laughs> yeah sorry gloria go on To update the public on HIV and U equals U with a campaign matching the government's 1987 AIDS tombstone campaign. And we've seen you've been working tirelessly promoting the petition. Lots of social media posts, letters to the Secretary of State for health and social care. Yeah, it was Steve Barkley then. Mm. Oh, God, what a dickhead he was. So how did all of this come about? Well, it all came about from listening to a podcast, a podcast called... The HIV Podcast, which is hosted by the fabulous Sarah and Jess. I love the HIV Podcast ladies. From the HIV charity TVPS, or to give them their full name, 
Thames mm. Valley Positive Support. And this is a HIV charity that's been going for absolute decades. They were virtually there at the start of the AIDS pandemic, assisting people living with HIV and who sadly passed from AIDS and are still to this day supporting people living awesome. with HIV, doing an absolute fantastic job. And now they've got this global podcast, which has been a massive success called the HIV Podcast. So if you haven't heard it and you want to get educated about HIV in a kind of fun, non lectury way, or as the youth say today, in a non-crusty way, <laughs> then go check out these two ladies. I mean, they don't have chat shit sometimes, and they're like Richard and Judy on acid, talking <laughs> oh about God. chocolate buttons and dead mice and the delivery men and, you know, the man down at number seven putting the bins out. Mm-hmm. But it's really good. It's a really cool podcast. So if you want to get educated about HIV, then do go check them out. Well, I love listening to their weekly podcast. It's on my favourites list. And I was listening to one of their episodes last year titled Don't Die of Ignorance, which was an episode regarding the UK government's 1987 AIDS campaign, Don't Die of Ignorance. And this consisted of a leaflet that went through every single door of every single household here in the UK. Mm. And also a a very haunting TV advert of a tombstone that had had AIDS chiseled into the top and then it falls over and then the bouquet of flowers fall on it. And then so does the leaflet, AIDS, Don't Die of Ignorance. And they mentioned that, you know, the government haven't done an update since. And when you break it down, it's been over 36 years, almost 40 years. No way! And there's been consecutive governments, Labour Party, a coalition, Conservatives, and not a single one of them have decided to update the public. I mean, don't get me wrong, I was always taught at school that, you know, if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing well. And you don't leave a job half finished. Exactly. And that's effectively what's happened here. You know, they've put out this haunting harrowing advert, but there's just been no follow-up. And the general consensus is that these adverts perhaps did create more HIV stigma mm. than they did diminish it, um, even still to this day. Yeah. And it just got me thinking, really. The ladies were talking in the episode about how there should be an updated campaign. And I think off the top of my head, I think I spent £3.57 um, or thereabouts um, in kind of making a, a kind of an alternative tombstone. So we've seen it fallen. I made this short film that sees the tombstone rising, except with HIV on the top and not AIDS because times have changed. And it's still dark and gloomy. And, you know, I was kind of putting the message across of you equals you, which is undetectable equals untransmittable. Awesome. And I got lots of messages from people that were living with HIV and not living with HIV that said, you know, it was kind of very moving. It was very inspirational. And it was kind of very, to excuse the pun, positive um, in the message that it was delivering. And then just the more I thought about it, I thought, why have the government not followed up with this you know why have they left the job half done so effectively the government has got unfinished business and you know we need to get together collectively and get the government to sort this out to finish where it started so i thought i'm going to start a petition so i submitted a petition for review on the uk government and parliamentary platform so the petition eventually goes live Who's the first to sign? So once the wording was approved for the blurb of the petition, I then had to get five supporters that would support the petition before it would go live. Um, so Sarah and Jess, the presenters of the HIV podcast, who have been working for TVPS for decades between them, um, they were the first two to put their signatures awesome. in support of the petition. So that was absolutely fantastic, especially as they were the inspiration from their Don't Die of Ignorance um, yeah. episode from the HIV podcast. And then one of my followers, Alan, who's living with HIV, he was really good to lend his support as well and sign. So he was the third. Great. And then just two of my um, friends that were living with HIV, they also lent their support as well. 
So, yeah, that got the, the ball rolling awesome. and they were the first five signatures of the petition. And from there, it just crept up. And it goes without saying, the LGBT media must have been all over this. Any excuse to bash the Tories in support of the HIV, especially those in the gay community? Well, you would have thought so, wouldn't you, Gloria? But I did send out a press release to all the major news outlets um, but with special focus, really, on the LGBT media, mm. I think it might come as a shock to people that not a single gay media outlet expressed any interest in the petition whatsoever. What? You're not serious. I tagged stories, reels, posts. I've sent email after email to the likes of Gay Dior, Gay Times, Pink News. And Pink News, I know they've seen many stories because you can see that in the activity feed who's viewed um your stories in pink news have seen several and not fucking one of them has expressed no any way. interest whatsoever do you know it's absolutely sickening You're shitting um it just you know it just boils my piss honestly i am at a loss for words the petition isn't about me the petition is about people living with hiv mm. you know and that still probably is predominantly the gay community today and there's been extra focus on the trans community that are living with hiv although statistics show that recent infections have been kind of seen an upsurge with the heterosexual um community something as poignant and significant as this and the gay press are not all over it in a show of solidarity with the hiv community which let's face it the gay community was heavily impacted by AIDS and HIV. And I just find it incredibly bizarre that this is not something that they would want to report on or get behind. I mean, I've seen some ridiculous stories in Pink News, you know. Um, what did I see one time? Oh, some twink that was stood at a bus stop that um, had experienced a homophobic attack um, because apparently somebody in passing called him a faggot at the bus stop. Now, look, I'm not condoning any kind of homophobic, uh, homophobic abuse whatsoever. Exactly. You can't walk around telling people that you've reclaimed the word faggot and then fucking cry about it when somebody throws yeah. it back in your face, especially when you haven't consulted the older members of the gay community, you know, that still find faggot and queer, homophobic slurs, and still offensive. Exactly. But, you know, you're young and you're out there and, you know, fucking wave with your silly haircut and your painted nails, whinging oh, wow. on that someone's called you a faggot. We've got something a little bit more pressing here. You know, we've got a fucking whole community uh-huh. that have been and still are being affected by HIV and AIDS. We've got a petition calling upon the government to, um, you know, update the public, finish where it started. You know, it's got unfinished business, but no, pink news. Another gay media outlets, not interested. It's not important. How does this make you feel as a gay man living with HIV to experience such media silence? Do you know, and I say this genuinely, um, is it's not a matter of how I feel as a gay man, but it's more the weight that I feel on my shoulders for the entire HIV community, especially gay men and trans individuals. Yeah living with HIV. And it is the whole kind of pink triangle, silence equals death, with such a great irony that the LGBT media are the ones that are remaining silent on this. Mm. I'm not necessarily saying, I don't think statistics support that HIV stigma relates to death, but, you know, it really does impact our lives quite heavily, you know, especially people that are perhaps not 
thick-skinned or, you know, strong-willed to be able to overlook some of the bullshit that people say, you know, some of the rhetoric from the 1980s. So I, I do now believe that the LGBT media um, cannot claim to not have a role in HIV stigma uh-huh. because I find it not only bizarre that they've remained silent, despite, yeah. as I say, some of them seeing the stories, emails that they must have received, but the fact that those emails and stories and tags in stories and reels have just been completely ignored. You know, in the case of Pink News on Freds, they said to me, oh, we're really sorry, you know, someone's possibly been overlooked and we're going to pass this on to the news desk. No one's reached out to me. No one's got in touch with me and I've not seen anything in the no in, in, in the Pink News relating to the petition, you know, kind of garnering support from the wider community um, to get behind and support. I just think it's it's just really, really sad. But I think what is... The only positive I feel that we can take away from this is that the LGBT media doesn't support people living with HIV and it particularly doesn't support um, people living with HIV that perhaps relate um, to the LGBT community. And I think that is a great shame, uh-huh. but a massive eye-opener. So with the LGBT media unwilling to cover the petition, I, I still can't get my head around this, by the way. No, me neither. You then write several letters to the then Secretary of State for Health, Steve Barclay. I have to say, the letters were so well put together, and anybody wanting to read them can find them right on your blog. And when you eventually get a response, it was, in all due respect, piss poor. It sounded like they were just passing the buck. Yeah, but it not only had that kind of passing the buck kind of feel to it, it was also very classic, um, this wasn't a politician, but very kind of classic politician government in the sense of not answering any of the concerns that I raised. Mm. You know, the letter was very much a case of, this is me, I'm living with HIV, this is what I'm experiencing in the terms of HIV stigma, yeah. what are you going to do to fix it? Exactly. And just nothing came back that address- addressed any of the concerns that I'd raised. You know, there was a lot of kind of airy-fairy mumbo-jumbo about what they're doing to prevent HIV and prevention this and prevention that, and it's like, fucking hell, did you listen to a word I said? <laughs> yeah. I've already got it, mate. You know, it's too late to be kind of preventing anything with me. I've already got it. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Wakey, wakey. Um, and then they were talking about HIV Prevention England. Who the fuck is HIV Prevention England? I've never heard of these. <laughs> who are these people? Anybody? Anybody know who HIV Prevention England is? But, you know, and then it was kind of, you know, signposting me to THT, Terence Higgins Really? Trust. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? The government were responsible for the 1987 campaign. It was the government, the health security agency at the time, and even Margaret Thatcher apparently watched the campaign, signed it off, told them to take out this, put this in, don't mention this, don't talk about that. Why have they not addressed any of the concerns that I raised about the stigma that still exists from their AIDS Don't Die of Ignorance campaign? And then I obviously, you know, I told them in protest that I'd gone on a HIV medication strike, so I wasn't taking my HIV medication. (gasps) And they basically just said to me, contact Terence Higgins Trust. Shut up. I'm not being funny. I wouldn't trust Terence Higgins Trust with my house plants. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And I really probably shouldn't say any more than that, really. I also think, correct me if I'm wrong, that many people living with HIV are not going around sharing stories of the stigma they face. No, you're right. And this is why the petition exists, because people are too afraid to talk about their HIV diagnosis. Uh 
um, our status because HIV stigma still exists. Exactly. You know? For whatever reason, some people take great pleasure in weaponizing someone's HIV status. So you don't get a lot of people that are like what we said earlier, gobshites like me that are willing <laughs> to kind of stand up and say something. You know, there's a lot of people that haven't got, I don't want to say strength, but... You know, there's a natural instinct, I suppose, as human beings to protect ourselves. And when yeah. you know HIV stigma and the weaponization now, which seems to be a growing trend, um, exists, why are you going to put yourself out there? Why are you going to put your status out there? So, you know, there's pretty so many stories that just go untold because, you know, people quite rightly want to protect themselves. This is it. There are so many stories of HIV stigma that must go untold. Oh, absolutely. I don't think you'll ever... Meet somebody living with HIV that can't tell you, um, you know, one if not many more incidents of HIV stigma that they've experienced. Mm. And I've met a lot of people, especially people that have been living with HIV for, you know, a number of decades now. Some cases from the early 90s. And they'll tell me, you know, perhaps uh, HIV stigma they faced or encountered in the first couple of years of being diagnosed in the early 90s. And they'll tell me of a similar story that only happened a couple of years wow. ago. And it's just astonishing that it's still the same kind of rhetoric and bullshit that people are spouting no up. Because either they believe it or, as you know, we kind of see this growing trend now where people have become so malicious that mm. you know, they'll weaponize someone's HIV status you know, just to kind of get a reaction or just for pure enjoyment. I know you've had several experiences of HIV stigma, and I think there are a couple that would blow the minds of the listeners. For me, the one in Croydon A&E, I found dreadful. The zombie nurse of Croydon A&E. This was like a couple of months after I'd been diagnosed, and we are in lockdown at the time for COVID-19. Yeah. And um, I wasn't feeling well at home, so I called NHS 111, and the, the doctor said, oh, I'm going to send an ambulance to collect you and take you to hospital. What? So the ambulance comes out, does an ECG, they say it's normal. I'm going to take you to hospital. Should I bring a medication? No, you'll be back by this evening. Okay, cool. Gets in the ambulance, sat there, feeling fine. A little bit unwell, but feeling fine. You know, I've been driven to hospital in an ambulance like an Uber. <laughs> they take me into like the trauma unit, into a beer, do all the statistics and stuff, fit a cannula, take some blood, makes me sit outside in the waiting area. So I'm sat in this waiting area watching the news. It's all COVID, 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 death, death, death. Sat there for about three hours. I'm getting quite moody now. Like, yeah. I want to go home. Why am I sitting here? You know, with one arm in my jacket, one arm out because I've got this cannula hanging out my arm. And um, they come out. They come rushing out. Oh, Mr. Hampson, we've got a bear for you. Can you come in, please? You need to get into this bear. And I'm like to put, trying to put my jacket on. No, 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 just leave that, Mr. Hampson. Come on, you just need to yeah. get into a bear. So gets into this bear and there's this American nurse or a sister or whatever she was. Really nice, really lovely. She's like, oh, and we think you've had a heart attack. No way. And I was like, what do you mean, think? And she was like, well, you've got troponin in your blood, which is the protein that shouldn't be there. And it's only there when your heart's had an attack. And I was like, okay. So she tells me, like, the scale of how much troponin I've got in my blood. So she's like, munch on this tablet. So I'm like, munch, munch, wow. munch. Wow. I think it was uh, an aspirin or something like that. Then they give me an injection in my stomach. That's to thin your blood. I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I'm, like, laid there. still wanting to go home, actually. She um, had been just talking to me earlier about my HIV status and stuff. And she's asking me my stats yeah. as such what was your viral load when you were diagnosed because it was only a few months ago 100% adherence to your medication yeah are you undetectable yeah so anyway she comes in and she's oh I'm, I'm going in a minute she went, so I'm going to hand over to the to the evening mm. team uh, but just wish you the best of luck kind yeah. of thing so it's like a nice little cubicle it's all glass fronted glass door and the door's open and which is the, like at the end of the bed 
So I heard her saying to this like group of about three nurses, um, oh, this is Mr. Hampson. He's coming with a heart attack. His troponin level is blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He's been administered this, this, and this. He's HIV positive. Uh, it's undetected. Oh, what's, what's your problem? What's wrong? <gasps> what? And I just thought, oh, here we go. So my little ears pricked up and I'm listening. And she's going, that's a really ignorant thing to no say. No way. She's talking to one of the nurses. Shut she's going, Yeah, but up. what's your problem? No, he's undetectable. No, he's absolutely no risk to you whatsoever. No And he's way. going on and on and on. I'm like, my toes are curling because I'm thinking, no, I wasn't particularly bothered about the discussion. I'm thinking, I wanted to shout, yeah, I can hear you. Oh, my god! <laughs> I can hear you talking about me. Yeah. And, um, but actually she was getting quite incensed and quite passionate was this nurse. Really? And um, to the point when she went, look, you're being totally ignorant. I worked on the AIDS wards in America in the 80s and the 90s. There was no treatment, no cure, and I just had to watch people die. And um, you're just being really ignorant about this. It's absolutely no exactly. risk to you whatsoever. So I thought, okay, she's really angry that somebody on her team or somebody that she's working with, a colleague, could be so ignorant. She sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah, she was definitely amazing because she was just fighting my corner. And not only my corner, but she was fighting the corner for everybody living with HIV. And I think what was quite worrying was that this was the NHS. Mm. This was in a trauma A&E section of the building. These were all nurses that were there to look after people. And I just thought, I just find it really hard to believe that this nurse wasn't weaponizing someone's HIV. Because yeah. surely, if I, in the hotel, as a hotel receptionist, and throughout my hotel career career every year was always had to brush up on needle stick injuries which is when needles jab you mm. and you know going on courses where they would say oh you probably wouldn't experience this on reception this is probably more for the housekeeping team because when housekeeping teams are cleaning bedrooms if there's a user in there drugs user that uses needles you know they might leave a discarded needle lying around so i thought if hotel housekeeping teams get trained like that you can't tell me that nurses who are trained in taking blood as perhaps one of the first menial jobs that they're tasked with doing, that they've not been trained on HIV should they prick mm, themselves exactly. with a patient's needle by accident. So that was that. Then um, the doctor comes back in. Oh, okay, Mr. Hampson, we want to do another ECG on you. I was like, okay, cool. And he looked at my stickers on my chest and my stomach and was like, oh, yeah, they're all fine. Mm. Um, so he said, I'll send the nurse in. And I was going to say, can you make sure it's not this specific nurse? Yeah. And I just thought, oh, don't say anything. Hopefully I'll get somebody else. Lo and behold, she walks in like a zombie. What? She's got her no arms way. outstretched in front of her like she's auditioning for a zombie movie. <laughs> she's got these cables, which are all different colours on the end. So you've got a red cable, a green cable, purple cable, blue, per- mm. blue cable, yellow cable. And she's got two of them in her hand. And she's walking towards me like a zombie. What? And I've had to like put my tongue into the side of my cheek to stop myself from laughing because she looked like a complete tit. So she's getting so (laughs) close. So I'd start to then like naturally just unconsciously start leaning forward so that my chest is closer so that she can then just clip them on. So she (laughs) can then fuck off out of my personal space. (laughs) So anyway, she lets go of these clips because she thinks they're clipped on and they just drop onto my lap. And I just like looked down and I just thought, oh... So I picked them up and give them back to her. And she kind of, again, arms outstretched like a zombie. Oh, my god! She takes the clips out of my hands and she tries again. Does exactly the same thing. So I thought, oh, okay, I think, you know, now I understand what's going on here. So she'd not taken any of the Ward sisters' reassurances on board. 
it's mind-blowing because this is a medical professional or supposed to be within the NHS. So I picked up the clips and I had like a red cable in my hand. I went, does this one go on here on the left of my chest? She went, yeah. When does this one go on this side? She was like, no, it goes down the bottom. So anyway, we managed to eye clip them on all by myself, clip all these electrode clips to these sticker things on my chest and my stomach mm. and stuff. And she's doing the ECG, like reading from about three meters away, pulling the cable tight, you know, so she didn't have to get any closer. <gasps> and I went, you do know you can't catch yeah. it. And she went, what? Like really arrogant, what? And I went, the AIDS. You can't catch it from just being in the vicinity. You can't catch it, you know, if you accidentally touch me or all like that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, she went, oh, it's all done now. And I was like, okay, shall I take the cables off? She went, yes. So I took off all the cables and I just couldn't help it. It was really bad to me. I just threw them at her. I just thought, fuck, go on, fuck off, get out. <laughs> anyway, the doctor came back in about half an hour later with the, like, looking at the ECG and that. And he was talking to me. And I think that was part of the whole, um, like, perhaps the responsive check yeah. to talk to me. And I think he kind of gathered that I wasn't as talkative as I had been earlier. He was like, is everything all right? You don't seem to be as talkative as, as as earlier. And I told him what had happened. And he was like, straight away, he went, oh, I can't believe it. I'll have a word with her. That's not acceptable at all. Please, William, accept my apologies. Awesome. It's apps you shouldn't be treated like that. Anyway, I didn't see her after that. Are there any other experiences of HIV stigma that stand out for you? So the first year that I was diagnosed, I was invited to take the flu vaccine. Mm. I went along to the Boots pharmacist in Penge. So we goes into the room and the ladies um, sat me down. Then she said, um, well, I'll just go get the injection. And she comes back with a cardboard box and she opens the box and takes the injection out and um, starts to prepare it. And she asked me to take off my jacket. And then she went, right, well, quickly just go through the form. So we goes through the form. So she went, oh, immunosuppressed. And then she went, can you elaborate further? And I said, oh, I'm HIV positive. And she said, oh. So she gets up. She, <laughs> she leaves the room. And another girl comes in and um, says, okay, is this the arm you oh want it gosh. in? She picks up the injection, like looks it, checks it over because she's not prepared it. Then she just jabs it in my arm and no that's way. it. And I just, the whole time I just was sat there and I just thought, I know what's just happened here. Yeah. She was going to give me the injection, the first um, girl. And as soon as I mentioned HIV, she got up and left and sent somebody else in to do that's it. That's shady. And I just thought... Are you taking the piss? She couldn't have made that more obvious. Exactly. And the second time with Boots Pharmacy was at the branch at Piccadilly Circus, which was just around the corner from work from me. And again, I booked the flu vaccine online. I selected all the bits and bobs about HIV. Mm. Anyway, I turns up like five minutes before my scheduled appointment. Five times over the course of 40 minutes, the lady on the reception desk kept running out going, oh, I'm really sorry, the pharmacist will be with you in five minutes. What? And then she came back, oh, the pharmacist will be with you in five to ten minutes, I'm really sorry to keep you waiting, it shouldn't be long now. Five times. No way. And the whole time there was pharmacists or people that worked there certainly kept coming up to her going, I'm sorry, but I'm not doing it, I'm not doing it. What? And I just thought, there's something not quite right here, but I had no proof. I was trying to tell myself, don't let your imagination go wild. It's nothing to do with you. It's fine. Yeah. Then a different lady on the sixth occasion came to me and said, I'm really sorry, but we're struggling to find a pharmacist to administer the vaccine. And she was like, so open. She said to me, oh, we've got one, but she's on a lunch break and she's refusing to come off her lunch break to give you the vaccine. Shut up. And I was like, I don't know if you've ever watched Judge Judy, but she says... 
if something doesn't make sense, it's probably not true. Yeah. And she kind of looked at me and I said, because what you're telling me doesn't make sense. And your colleague didn't make any sense because people arrived after me, confirmed that they were receiving a flu jab on the NHS just like I am, Mm. were given a form, declared themselves that the time of their appointment, which was later than mine. Really? But have seemingly been whisked into a room to receive their flu jab. No way. And 45 minutes now, I've been waiting and been told now for the sixth time (gasps) that somebody be with me shortly. I said, no, I don't know, but something fishy seems to be going on here. I said, I don't know what information you hold of me on my profile for when I've booked because I use the same email address. Mm. Um, I said, but there's something not quite right. I said, so I think I'll leave it. So anyway, she persuaded me to stay because she said, no, no, no. She went, there's a pharmacist who's with a customer at the moment doing a travel consultancy appointment. As soon as he's finished, he'll administer the vaccine. I thought, why is it very specific that this particular pharmacist will do it? So anyway, I'm hanging around by the reception desk in boots at Piccadilly Circus. And I see this man that turned out to be a customer walk out of the room. And I see this other man follow him behind, which turns out to be a pharmacist. pharmacist or the guy that's going to do the vaccine so he walks behind the desk finishes off with his customer and the customer leaves so the woman says oh i have mr hampson here i was waiting for the flu vaccine and he scrunched up his face and said i've told you i'm not doing it i'm absolutely not doing it well this is so sad And i'm stood by the desk because when she said mr hampson i started to move forward to get ready to perhaps join in and engage in a conversation and I felt so uncomfortable. I literally, like, my bum hole just went, whoop. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, shit. I'm stood here witnessing this guy saying that he doesn't want to give me the flu vaccine. Now, I don't know what the reason was. He might have finished work 10 minutes ago and didn't want to stay for another mm. 10 minutes. I just don't know. But it just all sounded way too fishy. Uh-huh. She turned to me and said, oh, I'm not sure if he's going to give it to wow. you. Wow. And then he said because he then realised that I was the Mr. Hampson that she was referring to, and I was the one waiting for the vaccine. He said, well, if I have to do it, I'll do it. Oh, my God! I said, do you know what? I said, if you really don't want to do it, I said, I can tell by your face that you're rather upset. I said, I'd rather just leave it. Exactly. I said, I don't want somebody who's in this kind of a mood to be sticking a needle in my arm. So the woman, to give her credit, she was like, no, 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 it's not like that at all. And then he came over and was like, I'll tell you why I'm upset. I said, that... I like waved my arm around. I said, I, I don't want to know. I said, I'm not interested. Mm. I said, look, I'm not complaining. I just want to leave. I said, clearly nobody here over the last 45 minutes, 50 minutes now even, has felt comfortable to give me the flu vaccine. Yeah. I said, I don't really feel comfortable him giving me the vaccine. I said, so I'd rather leave it. Thank you very much. And I left. And obviously I have no proof. It's all speculation. But to me, it's clear that... They were somehow aware of my HIV status and seemingly didn't want to give me the vaccine. Perhaps too scared that maybe they'd get infected with the HIV or the AIDS. Oh my God. So I left and I haven't received the flu vaccine. And if I'm honest with you, that kind of experience again with Boots Pharmacy. And I know I can get the flu vaccine in other places, but I just think, why bother? I'd rather just save myself the time, the stress. And even it wasn't an argument, but the kind of, you know, having to kind of confront people about mm. why you're not going to be able to get the vaccine or I just think just for the easiest life, just don't bother. And that's a shame, really. Boots Pharmacy should should take note, you know, that 
Possibly, maybe one day, if I don't take the flu vaccine, it could cost me my life. But then it seems they don't really care. So it's clear why you are so passionate about the government addressing HIV stigma with the follow-up campaign to their 1987 AIDS tombstone. Mm, Well, I think the only point I'd like to make, actually, and look, I I truly appreciate your kind words, Gloria, because I know what you're trying to to say, and I I really do appreciate it. But I think, for me, I'm not passionate about the petition because I think to be passionate about something, you've got to, you know, kind of get excitement, get a a thrill, a buzz, a Mm. kick or pleasure from it. And I don't take any pleasure from the work that I'm having to do around the petition. In fact, I find it quite demoralizing. Really? Um, on many fronts, really. And a couple of them would be the fact that I'm not somebody who would, in my normal life as myself, ask anybody for help, essentially. And here I am now having to kind of send out emails and tagging stories and reels and posts and begging people to kind of sign the petition and then trying to convince them to not only sign it, but then share it with people. Uh-huh. And when you don't really kind of get any response back or not much response, or when you write these kind of emails and letters to, you know, famous faces that have either lived through the AIDS pandemic, were somehow involved in the AIDS pandemic, mm. are still on TV today, banging on about, you know, how they support people living with HIV and isn't it so sad and boo-hoo-hoo, you know, what I would probably now cynically term as, you know, crocodile tears or just, you know, seeking HIV AIDS clout to make them, you know, look like the the new Princess Diana. And then it becomes doubly demoralising when you message these individuals or the LGBT media or these famous individuals or their agents and you just get no response back and you just think, wow... You know, you wrote a song about AIDS or you sung a song about HIV and AIDS. You had a friend that died in the AIDS pandemic. You know, you're living with HIV yourself Mm. and you're just just not interested. And I just can't wrap my head around it. It's the same issues with the LGBT media. Maybe I'm just deluded to think that this is something that, you know, needs to be addressed. But for me, the government has got unfinished business. You know, they have left a job half done. I mean, look, let's put it this way. You know, if you hired a builder or a decorator to come into your home and to repaint the whole of your lounge mm. that consists of four walls, say, yeah. and the decorator only paints two of the, those walls and then fucks off and then just never returns again, you'd be screaming that that decorator or a builder was a cowboy. Yeah. So why can it not be said for our members of parliament, those that were involved in the 1987 AIDS Don't Die of Ignorance campaign, why does that not include that these cowboys that are now in the, the House of Lords? Exactly. You know, why, are, why are all these successive governments, you know, and they've all been in power, Labour, the Conservatives, the Coalition, they've all been in power since 1987, since the AIDS Don't Die of Ignorance campaign. So why are they not classed as cowboys? Because they've left a job half done. They haven't finished what they started. Essentially, it is... A hit and run. Yeah. You know, they hit the nation with the AIDS Don't Die Ignorance campaign and then just fucked off and have not been seen since. And by the time of your second letter, you had gone on an HIV medication strike. Effectively, you had stopped taking your HIV medication in protest based on why prolong your life with HIV when you must face HIV stigma and the weaponization of your HIV status in daily life. As it's just you and me, we can treat this private chat as a confessional. I promise it won't go any further. Do you have anything you wish to confess? Are you sure it's just me and you? Yeah. All right, 
Okay, then here goes. Sister Gloria, please forgive me for I have sinned. I've told a little white lie, but please don't judge me. Please hear me out first. So, uh-huh. basically, my confession is that I just felt that there would come a time when I'd written to the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, mm. who couldn't be asked to respond. Although when they did respond later, they said that the first letter that I'd sent them had somehow got lost. Great. Um, which is quite hard to do by email, I'd imagine. But anyway, apparently <laughs> yeah. it got lost. And um, so when I um, wrote the second letter to the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, mm. I actually thought, you know, maybe I just need to get a little bit smarter here, put the pressure on a little bit. Yeah. With a genuine thought of why am I prolonging my life with the medication that the NHS is providing me, for me just to kind of live a lot more years than I would have done without HIV medication, just to listen to this bullshit and the HIV stigma and the malicious act that these certain individuals, you know, who get great enjoyment from being malicious and weaponizing an individual's HIV status. Why am I going to put myself through all of that? Exactly. You know, I think I'm going to announce that I'm going on a HIV medication strike, essentially stopping my HIV medication. And that was a lie. I didn't stop my HIV medication because I'm not a dickhead. You know, I'm not (laughs) stupid. But you know what's really sad, aside from my little porky pie about going on a HIV medication strike, that me declaring that I was going on a HIV medication strike exposed something even greater that I think is going to leave many LGBT individuals or many gay men actually questioning who are the LGBT press supporting because with the petition I shared with them why I as an individual had created the petition which was really on the basis of the fact that in early 2020 I'd been raped I'd been infected with HIV I'd come out of the COVID-19 lockdown I'd gone to work in a Soho gay bar to be amongst my gay peers and during that time one of my gay colleagues had found out that I was HIV positive had weaponized my HIV status to then blackmail me which then led me to ex- have this horrible experience, write a book about it, publish the book, have relative success with the book, and then go on to create this petition calling upon the UK government to finish what it started back in 1987 with the AIDS Don't Die of Ignorance campaign. Yeah. And then to top it all off as an extra, had stopped taking my HIV medication. And were the gay press interested? Were they? Were they? Fuck. Weren't interested at all. You know, a little lip gloss twink who apparently faced a homophobic attack at a bus stop on Charing Cross Road because somebody had shouted faggot in a fucking, you know, a homophobic slur, apparently, despite this little twink and the rest of his cronies (laughs) claiming that they'd reclaimed the word despite not consulting the rest of the LGBT or even the gay community decades prior who have said it's always been a homophobic slur was now splattered all over the gay press. (laughs) So it really brings into question the moral compass of the gay media, the gay press, what is it they're willing to cover? And I've got to clarify, you know, this wasn't about me, but the press had a perfect opportunity to highlight the petition and the individual that had created the petition had a bit of a backstory. So it wasn't a case of, oh, this dude has decided to create a HIV petition against the AIDS. You know, they could have easily have, you know, highlighted what I'd gone through you know, which was a perfect example of HIV stigma of as to why this petition needed to be supported by the community. Yeah. And they chose not to. And I find that really bizarre. I think it's almost like they believe that people with HIV only live with it for one day a year. And that's the 1st of December, World AIDS Day. Mm. And they don't only just live with it for the other 364 days a year, but we're going to live with it for an absolute fucking lifetime. 
you know, and they'll be expressing crocodile tears for all the AIDS victims and people living with HIV. Ooh, boo, boo, boo. With a little photograph of somebody holding a little tea light in Soho Square. Oh, how cute. Look, we're all for the AIDS. We're all for the people dying of the AIDS. <laughs> and, you know, they'll put that in their publications. And what does that generate? A little sob story, you know, right just before Christmas, tug at the heartstrings. Oh, you know, people in their little red ribbons. Clicks. Click, 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 click. And what do clicks mean? Advertisements. And what do advertisements mean? Money. Okay, so the LGBT media are alarmingly silent. The current government are useless, which we already knew. I think anybody listening is truly hoping to hear of a more positive engagement on this. The community must have thrown their weight behind the petition, right? Well, if you're referring to the gay community, I'd sent over 500 posters to over 100 LGBT venues across the UK from England, Scotland, Wales even Northern Ireland. Awesome. And these went to LGBT venues such as pubs, bars, saunas, sex shops. Great. uh, Quite a few bookshops, gay bookshops, and sexual health clinics as well. And quite sadly, actually, um, not one of the 37 venues in London that I posted posters to that I'd followed up on footwear. I went into um, pubs, bars, bookshops mm. and gone up to shop assistants and spoke to them at the counters and spoke to bar staff at the spa and asked to speak to the manager and I've dropped off posters on foot and been reassured that somebody would look into it, somebody would put them up. I just find it really bizarre that, you know, none of these places have put them up. No I walk way. past shops like the Gays the Word Bookshop in Bloomsbury. I walk past it twice every single day. I walk past it on my way into Soho to work. Mm. And I walk past it on my way out of Soho as I, I go home from work. Yeah. And they've got a notice board at the front of their shop, you know, which is quite iconic, really. You know, it's got a l- strong links with HIV and AIDS. It's got a blue plaque wow. above the door um, for Mark Ashton, who was an HIV mm. advocate and himself died of AIDS. And um, there's a little shrine at the back of the, the bookshop with AIDS posters. And it's kind of roped off with a little little red velvet rope, which is quite cute. But there's no sign of my poster whatsoever. And I always walk past and think, yeah, people living with HIV are not important today. Maybe tomorrow. You know, and nothing ever comes. <sighs> well, this is so sad. Obviously, we all remain hopeful that the petition will evoke much-needed change. But with just over one month left, do you think it's likely to reach the signatures needed? Well, I think you've always got to remain hopeful, really, aren't you? And uh-huh. I am kind of hopeful that people will be able to get behind the petition um, and sign it and and share it um but we need 10,000 signatures for the government to respond to the petition which would be holding them to account really um you know because they have got unfinished business and we need 100,000 signatures for them to possibly debate it in parliament well i think you've done an amazing job and for what it's worth what a fabulous pair of legs. Ah, you're talking about the Freddie Mercury video. Yes, it oh was a God. genius way to highlight attention to the petition. I want to break free from HIV stigma. If you haven't seen it, check out Will's Instagram, The Lost Boys of Soho, to witness those luscious legs. How did you come up with the idea, and how long did it take to well, make Well, the idea really came about just through being probably doing something that everybody's guilty of when a Queen song comes on and just lip syncing along to I want to break free while strutting around my house. Mm-hmm. It was very much a case of I want to break free to HIV stigma. 
because the petition is constantly on my mind, always trying to think of new inventive ways um, to try and raise awareness. Um, uh-huh. Given, as I've constantly complained throughout this episode, that, you know, clearly the LGBT media and the gay press weren't willing to cover it. It took me two hours to make. And I generally just did it in one or two takes, really. Awesome. I think to a degree what it did show was that I'd put in, um, you know, some effort to kind of do something that was a little bit entertaining. Yeah. And um, just to highlight a petition, really. Um, rather than just posting a link for the petition saying, can you please sign that, please? Well, I signed the petition, and it took less than a minute. But for those that haven't signed, explain where they can find it and how they can hopefully help make a historic difference this World AIDS Day. Well, people can find the link for the petition in this podcast episode. They can also find it on my social media, whether it be... um, um, Fred's on Instagram at the Lost Boys of Soho, which leads me on to the premiere of Scotland's groundbreaking TV ad on HIV. Oh, stigma. what a mess! I knew you wouldn't hold back. Do you know credit for tackling it, but it just seems a modern rehash of the 1987 AIDS tombstone. Exactly. The sinister voiceover, the dark and gloomy appearance, the negatives of living with HIV only feeds into the HIV stigma that already exists. Yeah. Do you know, I just, I just can't get my head around what Terence Sickens Trust were thinking. Yes, I saw you were quite critical of the ad and Terence Higgins Trust who produced it. I don't want it to sound like I'm bashing them, but I just cannot believe that a group of people from Terence Higgins Trust who produced this Scottish advert, not one person said, well, you know, we've got the guy doing the voiceover. He's, it's great that he's Scottish because it's gonna, only going to be shown in Scotland, but mm. it's all a little bit sinister, you know. It's all a little bit John Hurt. Yeah. And oh, what about, you know, all the images are really dark and gloomy. A lot of the feedback over the decades has been that the um, the fallen tombstone, it was all a bit dark and dingy, a bit gloomy, a bit doom and gloom, very haunting, harrowing. Mm. It's something that's lived with people, you know, for, for all these decades on and you know, it wasn't really a, a good thing. And oh, then we've we only had a minute and we've highlighted all these negative connotations of living with HIV. And I get that we were trying to, you know, show people what HIV stigma is, but when people watch this, is that what they're thinking? Or are they just automatically thinking, this is how we should treat people living with HIV, you know, we should double glove, um, we shouldn't touch them, and if, you know, a family member comes and tells us they've got HIV, then we need to abandon them and disown them. Um, But yeah, other than that, it's a really good advert, so yeah, can't (laughs) wait to see it on the TV. I can't believe that nobody said... (laughs) This is all very fucking similar to the 1987 tombstone that people living with HIV and not living with HIV over the decades have said this was haunting, it's harrowing, mm. it was perhaps a little bit too much. And as we discussed earlier, when you've got a charity or an organisation that's slowly starting to u- lose service users because mm. they're able to live independently by taking one pill a day, living long, healthy lives with normal life expectancies, you know, not needing to rely exactly. on the services of old anymore. It makes you wonder, and it made me quite cynical as to what the purpose of this advert was because to me, putting a fucking scary advert out like that that is, you know, a rehash of the 1987 um AIDS tombstone advert is to provoke HIV stigma and weaponization of an individual's mm. HIV status in a bid to have more users come and use your services. And I wouldn't be surprised after seeing that comments were disabled and um, comments were censored and filtered to protect the community that 
that advert hasn't generated more HIV stigma and the weaponization of people's HIV status yeah. that's going to mean they're going to go run into THT and go, I'm going to need your services because I've experienced this HIV stigma. And THT going to be straight onto the government. We've seen a massive influx of users that are now using our services than before. We're going to need funding. Ka-ching! I also noticed that they had turned off comments or censored them, which can only lead you to conclude that either the ad had provoked stigma of old or that people expressed they were not happy with the ad. Was there anything positive that you took away from the Scottish ad? Yeah, the only positive thing that I took away from the advert was the fact that I don't live in Scotland. (laughs) Because if I was living in Scotland, as I did for two years, lived in um, central Glasgow, if I lived in Scotland now, living with HIV, after seeing an advert being played and played and played and played again on TV, I'd be fucking shitting myself. So in your view, it truly missed the brief. Yeah, and it is just my view. But do you know what was just so fucking reassuring was... I received so many messages, over really? 30 messages, and they were fucking angry. Oh and many people declared that they were going to withdraw their subscription from THT or their monthly donations that come out by direct debit. Um, there was a couple of people that said they were going to complain directly to THT. Wow. Um, these were a mixture of people living with HIV, not living with HIV, but knew somebody who was living with HIV. So I didn't get one person that said your blind reaction that you posted on your reels was wrong. You've got this mm. wrong. It's a really good advert. It's really not one person. I guess it would be challenging within a one minute film to highlight scenarios of HIV stigma. Yeah, but it wasn't challenging, was it? Because they've pulled it off. <laughs> they've managed to do it in a one minute TV advert. They've managed to show people almost like a tutorial what HIV stigma is, how to weaponize someone's HIV status. You know, it could have just been so much better. It's, it's an opportunity missed. So to be clear, if the UK government finishes what it started in 1987 by updating the public on HIV and AIDS, it should not appoint THT to create a campaign. Oh my God, absolutely not. Over my dead body. And it's not even just Terence Higgins Trust. No HIV charity, no HIV organisation should be tasked with this job. It's the government's job the government has unfinished business. The government needs to pull its finger out of its ass and finish what it started in 1987. It's nobody else's responsibility. Nobody else needs to come running along with a mop. The government needs to sort this shit out. So if the UK government or a media agency approached you for ideas on making an HIV stigma ad, what would be your vision? Sell it to us. So at the time of the Scottish advert, I was being quite facetious when I posted on my social media account an advert that I've had in the back of my head, I think probably for about a year now, that I think would have made a fucking amazing HIV stigma advert. Mm. And that is the Jet 2 Holiday video with Jess Glynn, Hold My Hand. Um, It starts off with who I perceive to be the boyfriend. The boyfriend is on the tarmac at the airport and you can see the plane in the background and there's people boarding and he's literally got hold of what looks like the camera lens because he's dragging the audience along with him for the journey. Yeah. But in reality, he must have the ha- he must be holding the hand of his girlfriend and the girlfriend's got hold of the camera and you know we can see through the lens. But it just feels like that he's taking us on the journey with him. 
And I think that's a really creative way, whoever created that advert, to make the people sat at home on their sofa being taken on the journey with them. And obviously, exactly. you feel like you're going on the journey. It makes you want to book a holiday. Every time I watch it, it always makes me, makes me want to book a holiday. Then <laughs> you see them jet skiing, and then you see them out having dinner and having cocktails, and then you see them splashing around in either the sea or the swimming pool. And for me, it's just so significant to people living with HIV because we live our lives just like that. We're just ordinary people, uh-huh. you know, with an invisible condition. Nobody can see it. We take one pill a day where you equals you. We can do all of those things. We can go jet skiing. We can have relationships. You know, we can go down to the bar and drink alcohol just like they were doing at nighttime with the lights twinkling in the background. And I just think as the advert plays out and as the viewer at home has been dragged along, I just think it would be fucking genius if, as he's pulling the camera along and they're turning the corner, that he just turns, the music stops, and he's faced and confronted with a giant AIDS tombstone or perhaps um, HIV stigma chiselled out of stone. And he's just there and he's dwarfed by it because it's bigger than him. And also, as a big, like, fuck you to the tombstone. So it literally just gently taps the tombstone, perhaps kicks it, or maybe just blows, and it just topples over and smashes, and the music restarts. And they go on. They proceed. They walk over it, whatever, because they just go on with their life. Awesome. Highlighting that HIV stigma won't stop them. You know, they'll get on with their life. I think something like that would have been far more effective than this Mm. um, campaign. Obviously, they won't be able to do that. You know, you'd need a, somebody with a super creative mind or media genius to perhaps think of something along the same vein or lines, but yeah. it's obviously very different because you won't be able to do that. You won't be able to use that song. And I think with the song Hold My Hand, it would have been a fantastic nod to Princess Diana, you know, with the whole touching the AIDS patient and breaking down the barriers and stigma of, you know, being able to touch people living with HIV and AIDS. They weren't a danger. You couldn't catch it through touch. I just think all tied together, it would have been fucking brilliant. It would have been iconic. And for me, just picturing it in my mind just makes me smile because I think it would have had the ability to educate people. Yeah. And it would have had a lot more of a feel-good factor about it. it would have shown people that there's nothing to be afraid of you can be joyous and happy because people living with hiv are joyous and happy they're just getting on with life they can do ordinary things i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i just think it would have been a far more effective advert than what they banged out in scotland november rain 1989 written by ivor that cold november day it rained As that wretched news was told, nobody knew how much it pained, as that black ball has taken hold. Life seemed to stop, the body maimed. Where was the joy, the crock of gold? That ball was black, as heavy as lead. No one could share its grime or its weight. Only the tears at night that were shed could wash away the guilt and hate. All was turmoil, life was dead, isolation seemed the only fate. Life goes on, the ball still weighing, heavy upon the heart still drained. Yet, supported by all the praying, love seeps through to a heart still pained. And not ashamed, the revelation telling, that cold November day, it rained. Ivor sadly lost his fight against AIDS 
on January the 24th, 1991. You can find out more about Ivor and his relationship with former partner Kevin Kelland on Instagram at Kelland Kevin. Everybody listening in the UK, please sign and share this petition and let's have the UK government finish what it started in 1987.